Hello, welcome to the Content Minds. I'm Ryan Broderick, and joining me is Luke Bailey. How is the internet this week, Luke? It's been pretty wild, Ryan. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion around uh, OpenAI's GPT-3. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people talking about it. What do you make of it? I, I think it's really exciting. GPT-3 is a powerful new tool that can generate human-like text from just a few words of input. It's a huge leap forward in artificial intelligence technology. Yeah, I'm not so sure about it. I'm concerned about the potential for misuse and abuse. Well, I understand your concerns, but I think the potential benefits of GPT-3 outweigh any potential risks. It could be used to automate mundane tasks like writing emails or articles, freeing up people's time to do more interesting work. That's true, but I'm still not convinced. What do you think the biggest risks are? Well, I think the biggest risk is that someone could use GPT-3 to generate text that's too convincing or uh, all malicious. Uh, there's also the risk that it could be used to spread misinformation. Yeah, I can see that, but I still think the risks outweigh the potential benefits. Well, I think it's worth taking a wait-and-see approach. We should monitor the development of GPT-3, and if there are any problems, then we can take action. That's true. I'm still not convinced. We'll have to agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. First of all, welcome to the show. (laughs) Welcome to the Content Minds. Before we get into today's show, I definitely want to say head over to thecontentminds.com, check out bonus episodes, get Discord access. Hey, Luke, why did we just read all that at the top of the show? Yeah, that was uh, the podcast as written by GPT-3 from OpenAI. So how did you how did you get it to generate that extremely riveting conversation between the two of us? I, I mean, the most I mean, the most unbelievable thing about it was that we we were very polite and agreed to disagree, which I think is improbable. Yes, we've never once done that. Yeah, um, this is producer Alan. I was going to jump in and tell you guys to stop, just because that's the cringiest thing that I've ever seen the two of you do oh, on the show. It was awful. Clearly, GPT three is just pure cringe. Yeah. Yes. It's a perfect segue into me bringing up this piece on the newsletter Embedded, which is called I Don't Care What the AI Wrote. And it sums up my feelings about all of the screenshots of GPT-3 chatbots I've seen, which is that they're really boring. Like, it's not fun. I'm not super into it. I, I feel like it j- my eyes glaze over. I mean, yeah, that's true. But I think it's really exciting. GPT-3 is a powerful new tool that can generate human-like <laughs> text. <laughs> Hang on, I should, I should say my prompt for this. My prompt for this was write a podcast script for the Content Minds hosted by Ryan Broderick and Luke Bailey. They argue about OpenAI's GPT. I don't know what this AI thinks the argument is because that was not an argument. No. Uh, Luke thinks it's great. Ryan hates it. Early on, Ryan asked Luke, how is the internet this week? That was the whole thing. I mean... I've generated a few of these and I played around with their prompts a little bit and they, I have had slightly better ones, but I exited out with them. So I think it's interesting that it wasn't nearly as passive-aggressive as our conversations typically are. No. I also think maybe you should have told it that you're British. It would have come across that I was, like, angrier, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Simmering with British rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I asked the the chat GPT this week to write me a Fall Out Boy song about Sonic the Hedgehog. And the verse and chorus it spit out was, Running fast, moving fast, gotta go. Through the green hills, gotta go. Sonic the Hedgehog, he's on the run. Got to save the day. Got to have some fun. And then the chorus is Sonic Sonic speeding through the night. 
Sonic, Sonic, always ready to fight. Sonic, Sonic, the blue blurs on the scene. Sonic, Sonic, the fastest thing you've ever seen, which is like fine. I feel like the chat, the chat stuff is just like filler words. It's all filler and not super fun. That's like absolutely true. It's it's tricky because I, I think that everyone always comes at this thinking that it's going to replace the best things. <laughs> right. But this is not replacing it's not replacing novels, it's not replacing journalism, it's not replacing songwriting or poem writing. It's replacing like tech support. Like genuinely, imagine this bot having been trained on actually, okay. You know what we had a real problem with was at the live show when we couldn't make it was the mic I think we couldn't make work. No, it's the clicker. It was the clicker to change the slides. Right. The clicker, yeah. Imagine if there had been a bot that you could have messaged who knew everything about the damn clicker. And you could have been like, Hi, this doesn't work. I've got this and this, what do I do? And it's like, oh, press this button, this button, it works. Like I could see this doing that very, very effectively, and I think that would be interesting. The clicker, I mean that that was my fault for buying an off brand clicker from china in a like off license minutes before the show but yes i agree that that would have been better to have a chat by that i could have asked some questions there's certain other things that i think maybe this sort of chat ai would be good for i saw it produce some pretty good recipes for like traditional dishes nothing special but if you asked it like how do i make spaghetti bolognese like it could probably do that pretty well I mean, that specific one would obviously have some Italian problems, but... But Italians are mad about everything, and, like, let them be mad. Let the Italians fight the robots. I don't care. I tried it with a full English. It gave me a full English. I tried it with a Sunday roast. It did a Sunday roast without potatoes, which I thought was odd, but, you know, it got close. That's interesting. Yeah, I I think the way that we interact with Google right now, most people, you know, you type it in a question, like, who is the actor in this thing that I'm looking at? I think probably a chatbot could do that faster and better to an extent. But I also think the more we rely on that, the more dangerous things get just because it could spit out all kinds of crazy nonsense. But I don't think it's interesting. I think I think it's actually inherently boring, which is why it's kind of so powerful. Right. But a bunch of important things that you read are boring by requirement. Like, like what? Well, OK. Things that you need to do. Like how many times have you bought like a device and the instructions are only in like Chinese and French and Esperanto. And this could translate them and spit out in natural language pretty well. Or you could just ask it, like, I don't know how this thing works, and it tells you. And I, I also I also think there's another really interesting use case for it, which is uh what ideation. Like but I talked about this when we talked about the image-based ones, like just coming up with new ideas. So I did like write a tagline for a burger restaurant, and I can't remember what it was, but it was something like get great burgers here. I was like, well, that's crap. And then I was like, oh. But also you could just write a hundred taglines for a burger shop. And he wrote a hundred taglines for a burger shop. 7% of them were awful. 15% of them were okay. And 15% were actually quite interesting because it's like having quite smart monkeys at an awful lot of typewriters. Yeah, I would agree with that. For Actually, for our live show in November, I did not have the time to draw a poster, which I did last year. So I outsourced the job that I did the year before. I felt like, okay, that's ethical. I'm replacing my own labor here. So I spent... Two hours in the Midjourney Discord working through, I had this idea in my head that I didn't actualize, which was actually very frustrating, which is I wanted sort of a robot looking at its phone while the city of London burned behind it. (laughs) That was kind of like what I wanted, like a little fun robot looking at tweets as the city burns. And I, I, I eventually sort of gave up trying to generate that idea and went with another idea that it had produced by accident that I thought was cool. And it was like a striking image that seemed to, you know, nobody, compl- no one said it was bad or good. It just sort of filled space, which I think is a good use for an AI. 
I think there's a lot of requirements on internet platforms for visuals that don't matter that you have to have to feed those algorithms. Like for instance, that the entire boom over vertical video and like translating a news story into a series of slides in a vertical video, most of the images don't even matter because they're required to be there, which is kind of weird to think about where it's like, I'm using an AI to fill the requirements of another AI so that my content can be seen in its recommendation system, even though none of these things really matter. And then the only reason that is even happening is because the advertising rates are better on video content versus text content. And so that's when I start to be like, what are we doing here? But, you know, I guess that's better than, no, it's not better than anything. I, I, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I just, but I just, I think that there is a chunks of text, chunks of things that exist, like, yeah, copywriting, like you can stick a product description into it and it will write you a pretty decent bit of ad copy. So one of my first jobs actually was, um, was writing PPC copy, like search ad copy. And you used to have to come up with like, I don't know, 50 variations of the same ad. And it would take forever because you would just stare at it and be like, there are only so many ways. I have, I have 25 characters, 35 characters, and 35 characters to play with. There's only so many ways I can phrase this. But with this, I could just be like, hey, write me 25, 25 character headlines for this thing. And it spat it out. And I was like, that is useful. Like, there's just a bunch of grunt work of word creation that is, this solves. Wait, but hold on. This is just what Ryan was saying. That was you, like you're saying that you would use an algorithm to feed content into another algorithm because the algorithm in this case is a search engine. Right. Like I, my first job in internet content was writing SEO articles about legal issues because we needed those articles to come up high in the Google search algorithm. So I'd write 500 word stories about things like car crash lawsuit and mesothelioma like exposure and shit. And so yes, an AI would be much better at that than me. But then we're just like, I don't know. I saw a tweet the other day that was something like, all the best jobs in the future are going to be prompting an AI and then debugging it. And that's just kind of what all of our jobs are going to become. Yeah, I agree. And, and what's interesting is, uh, you know, to circle back to the translation thing, I wanted to I wanted to highlight this YouTube comment that is going viral on Twitter right now. A user named Lauren Wilford shared it. So the comment reads, I spent decades of my life learning foreign languages only to see the translation industry destroyed by AI. The inferiority of the machine translations a few years back did not stop the destruction of the industry. The machine translation cost nothing. And so the price for all translation came crashing down because the bottom feeders use machine trans translation. I found myself paid half price just editing as if that was less work, a translation done by a machine, which was basically unintelligible so that I had to go back to the original and translate it myself. Most clients, the bottom of the pyramid that kept the industry going, did not care about the quality of the translation. If we expect that clients prizing human-made products will save industries, we are being very delusional. The vast majority of clients will go for the process that costs less, which I think could happen to a lot of forms of content. But at the same time, I think I use machine translation still all the time, and it's so much better than it was five years ago. And so... I'm torn because I, I think that like the accessibility you get from something like machine translation is revolutionary and, and it couldn't be done at the scale where, you know, I could hire a translator every time I needed to translate something to read a news story or talk to somebody. It's just not feasible. So it's like a really weird tension to me. And then a lot of it I do think boils down to using one AI to talk to another AI because we live in a in an increasingly sophisticated network of algorithms that are determining what we're seeing and doing. I agree with that, but I do also think that when people always talk about, oh, the algorithm's doing this, the algorithm's doing that, like particularly with search, for example, the algorithm's doing that because a bunch of people are searching for the thing. Like, it, it incentivizes certain things, but it's 
it's always kind of been the same. Like, what are you trying to write? The most attractive ad copy to go in the, the, the classified listings at the back of a newspaper? It's the same thing. Like, yeah, it's more industrial now and there's more algorithms involved, but ultimately there's a human communicating with a human at some point, no matter how many algorithms it goes through. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's worth taking the wait and see approach and we should monitor the development of GPT-3 <laughs> and if there are any problems, we can take action. I also I do like that the GPT-3 thought we should take action. It felt like it was it was our responsibility. Yeah, I think the AI genie is out of the bottle. I've already seen people on Twitter use like content warnings to be like, content warning, this was created by an AI and I'm like, oh my God, like this is just not sustainable. I think also, I, you know, I wrote about this in Garbage Day this week, but I think it's going to start to come down to access, you know, like who has access to the better AI, which is like a really complicated thing to think about where, you know, will rich people have better AI than the free ones that are, you know, developed and then, you know, trotted out into other places? Like, I I feel like AI is going to start to become very, very enmeshed in what we're doing and how we're acting and how we're socializing and how we're thinking. And now there's going to be a whole different conversation around inequality of like the quality of your AI. Like, I, I just think we're like, we're going to jump really fast because we're already jumping really fast. Yeah. Have you seen what people are doing with like, they're chaining together multiple AI to create like completely non-human content. Yeah. Fun fact, Alan just in our chat, wrote that he can't wait for the AI vegans who think they're better than all of us. So vegan data is a thing. I, I found out about this recently uh, while reporting a Fast Company story. The term vegan data is applied to data sets that are ethically and consensually sourced. So if your AI has vegan data, everyone who gave you their data knew they were giving you their data. You paid for it or you sourced it ethically. So there's already ethically sourced data. Uh, there will probably be anti-AI people increasingly uh, who, you know, don't use anything that has AI. But at the same time, I, I read this recently that like a few years ago, we already passed the threshold where you can't have, you can't find text that wasn't impacted by AI. Human language has already been altered by the existence of AI. I mean, I would argue that it was altered since the very first time we started using SEO, but the purity thing is going to get harder and harder to prove, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. It's it's. I don't. Okay, so I was I was experimenting with this one, trying to kind of get get through and, and, and like make it do a thing that was different. And I think a lot of the a lot of the stuff is kind of like it's pastiche rather than parody. It's not quite there. But one of the things like I kept asking it to write short stories in the style of like different writers, and I I picked the end of the world, like write a short story about the end of the world in the style of X, and I eventually got to F. Scott Fitzgerald, and most of it was kind of like really bad. But it like you know it had the kind of same cadences. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Um, but like some of the lines were just like the inhabitants of the world were unhappy, and it was like, all right, sure, that's awful. And then it had this line in it about halfway down where it described the central character that it created. I didn't ask the creator, but it created a character, and they described his eyes as seeming to peel the very veil of reality itself. And I was like, that's a good line. That goes hard as hell. That's sick. And I was like, where's that come from? And I was like, I assume it's taken from somewhere. It hadn't. Like, that's an entirely brand new line that it created. I was like, that's a really fucking good line for a computer to create. Admittedly, it's smart monkeys typewriters, but it, it works. Have you ever used any AI editing software? So Garbage Day doesn't have an editor. I have like a typo disclaimer at the bottom. And I thought, oh, like, I'll try Grammarly. I've heard Grammarly is a good AI editor. So I put Grammarly on, I turned it on. <laughs> and all it did was just strip out 
all of the Ryanisms. It just removed anything that made it feel like I wrote it. So it took out all the wells. It took out all the conjoining words. It took out all the folksy like truisms I put in there. It just stripped it all. And it just turned my writing into boilerplate. And I was like, okay, well, I'm never using this again. None of them are very good at voice. Like they really, really can't capture voice unless you say talk like a pirate, in which case it nails it. Right. It's really interesting how the AI reduces everything to kind of just lorem ipsum feeling but then it also every once in a while it'll, it'll produce something completely novel and exciting but i have like a whole discord going with midjourney which is a generative ai and you know i every once in a while i have like a fun idea i want to try with it and it it seems really stuck on a similar color palette and it seems really stuck on like really similar dimensions of images it, 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 it you you get kind of bored with it i i'm sort of losing interest yeah i mean i think a big part of why people are talking about it is the fact that it's accessible like that's it that's everyone can do it so yeah i want to talk about something deeply inaccessible now i have a question for you can you tell me more about this video that i came across this week of a London sex restaurant. Sometimes in London, you'll just come across the cutest little gem of a restaurant. This place is called Naked Soho, and they had the cutest restaurant with so much nice decor, all these classic paintings. The staff were really, really friendly, chatted to me a lot. I think he might have even started flirting with me a bit. Okay, so it's all right. So just describe it. It's a sex-themed restaurant. It's called Naked Soho. You go in and. It has a lot of very extremely subtle innuendo, I'll be honest. Like I mean, this just likes like a like a bachelor pie or a stag do, basically. Like there are there are some penis drawings on the wall, there are some yeah, vaguely suggestive foods, and that's about it. This is weird. Yeah, it's going viral on TikTok, and I feel like you have a very interesting point of view when it comes to like novelty restaurants in London. <laughs> <laughs> you have a you have an interesting uh interesting backstory with sort of that world, don't you? I do, I do. I mean, initially, like people may remember this from a few years ago, but there was a ball pit bar in London, which I was the first person to publish on. I was not the first one to film, but I was the first person to publish on because we turned that video on really quickly because I knew other people were filming, and it, it absolutely blew up. It was huge, and they were really successful. Uh, it's called Borley Borderson. We went back like a few months later, filmed them again. They opened a second location, which was way bigger. And they've done they've done really, really well out of it. And I'm I'm very happy for them because they are genuinely really, really nice people and really good people who are like I, I once I also they they I film up like a pride thing where they had like a ball, like their their float was just a ball pit. Well and I, I think my, my broad view on novelty restaurants is that every now and again one of them comes along and you're like, okay, that's quite a fun idea actually and if you do it properly and you put the effort into it and you're not just saying we have a ball pit therefore we will charge you three times as much for a beer and you're going to hate it but you say oh no we have a ball pit also we have a bunch of really interesting cocktails we come with our own cocktails we've got a good a generally good vibe we've got lots of other space we've got other things going on and it's like they clearly put the effort in it's like well fair enough that's just your gimmick like there's nothing wrong with having a gimmick this one on the other hand looks like nothing there's nothing happening here it looks like you just go in and get sexually harassed. That's what it looks like. No, it doesn't even look like that. Like, there's no one else in it, for one, which is number one thing when you're filming these. It's like a thing to avoid. Like, if it looks empty, it just looks like... But it's just... There's nothing to... Like, 
I'm just I'm sorry I'm googling it now to try and figure out like what the deal is but there was a lot of oh god there was a lot of there was a period when lots of things opened up kind of similar to this some of them did really really well like there was a bar that I did once which was a it was a code breaking bar and it was like themed like the blitz and it was like you know they they had put an awful lot of effort into it and fair enough wait themed like the blitz like the blitz of london yeah so you're like eating cans of beans in like this in the tube no 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 but you've got no uh, well no that was (laughs) there was also a tube themed one (laughs) (laughs) i feel like this is a thing that like a lot of americans just like don't know is this ongoing thing about london which is that there are absolutely berserk theme restaurants every couple months to be fair, not so much anymore. Like it was, it it, it was a very odd period because it was basically a function of the Facebook algorithm. It was that period when the Facebook algorithm would blow stuff up and suddenly show it to you know half a billion people overnight, right? And suddenly your thing would sell out for six months in advance, and so it made sense to do it. And now it's very very hard to do that. Like the restaurant you do has to be like astonishing. And so, do you think TikTok will bring that back? Maybe a little, but I also think that. You know, it was one of those things which a bunch of people really capitalized on for like a year and a half, and then it changed a bit, and now it's everywhere, and no one can do it quite as well. Occasionally, someone will come along and they'll really make it work, but often it's just kind of like, hey, we're a restaurant, and all the food we serve is circular. And it's like, okay. (laughs) Oh, you're talking about Circle Restaurant? I love Circle (laughs) Restaurant, yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. But like, this is a really good example of the, the bad version of this, I think, which... I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sure these people are lovely and fine and all, but it is just a restaurant that has no, pretty normal food. Like, I'm going to read out one of the the not-safe-work tapas. Cherry tomatoes and onions, balsamic drizzle and basil. Okay? What, what are we doing here? I'm looking at a plate of pasta, and it's just completely normal pasta, but then there's just a giant fucking ceramic cock coming out of the middle of the plate. That's that's all it is. It's just yeah. eat pasta and stare at this like hyper realistic ceramic penis, which I think uh you know what? Fair enough. Which is all you know what's even crazier though? You can't even post videos of this on TikTok without it being shadow banned because it's too pornographic. This is the problem, it's not even properly pornographic. You think it should be more you think there should be naked people in there and stuff. As far as I can tell, on some Sundays they have male strippers. But they don't they're not naked. Yeah, you're right. I think unless there's human ejaculate happening next to the food, it's just not. It's got. It's not going hard enough. If that's what you're saying, I agree with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, you've got to go for it. <laughs> got to go for it. Yeah. Uh, Luke, I hear that there's a new there's a new internet hero uh, of the UK. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, this is a this is a good one. All right, so this is a guy who used to be on The Apprentice, right? The Apprentice, you mean Dragon's Den? Is that correct? No, no, I mean The Apprentice. No, we have The Apprentice. Is The Apprentice the one with Lord Sugar? Is he yeah. on both? No, he's only on The Apprentice. He's not on Dragon's He's not one of the dragons. He's on not Dragon's one of the dragons, Den, which, is, yeah. which is your shark tank. Okay. And Lord Sugar is just like an old weird man, right? Like a rich old weird man. He is not. He is unrelated to most of this this conversation. But is Lord Sugar still the apprentice for the the, the the man who's in charge of the Apprentice? Sure, he's the trunk guy in the show. Correct. He's the trunk guy in the show. The show is not a major thing. This guy just happened to be on it like five years ago. That's the only relation this is. Oh, okay. So why did we start there? I, I got I got distracted because I because I said it and you kept saying it and okay. Anyway, this is a guy called Tom Skinner, and the main thing I want you to look at here is is. Describe what he's doing in the video and then look at the date timestamp of it. Okay, so I haven't played the video yet. 
but it's a man it's a it's a i would i would describe him as an aggressively british looking man yeah he's he, he he's like one of those british guys who's big and it's not really clear how he's just like big yeah and he's wearing he's wearing a very classic british man outfit which is like gray sweatsuit with like a with like a puffy vest over it and yeah he's he's quite red he looks quite red i can't tell if it's a sunburn or from alcohol or from whatever uh he has tweeted here, good morning and happy Tuesday, you lovely people. Sometimes we've got to remember that you've got to get through yesterday and you're going to do it again today. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. Going to enjoy my shepherd's pie and watch England after work tonight. Go smash the day. Bosh. Heart emoji. And he's sitting in like a, not like a kebab shop, but like one of those it's not like a de- it's not like a deli. It's like a very particular kind of British restaurant. It's it's calf. Good morning and happy Tuesday, you lovely, lovely people. Now it's a lovely morning. I'm in the cafe as per usual, and look what I've got today: lovely shepherd's pie, nice bit of veg, some baked beans, and obviously a lovely bit of gravy. He's just saying what's in the tweet. Like, there's more words, but he's essentially just saying what he tweeted. Yeah, the accent is like dead on. What you would expect. <laughs> He's like a proper British bloke who's eating a a shepherd's pie and just saying that he's very excited to watch England. Okay, yeah. All right. Now, what is the timestamp on that tweet? So it's seven in the morning. Yes. In fact, it's six fifty three a.m. Would Would you like to describe what he's eating? He's eating a shepherd's pie. He's eating yeah. a shepherd's pie at six in the morning with like a hot <laughs> cup of coffee, and he, I mean, he looks bombed. <laughs> I can't tell. Yeah. Talk me through this. All right. Basically, it's become a bit of a thing. And this is kind of, I think, the punchline of the whole thing is this next tweet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, hold on. Oh, man. Okay. All right. So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So, okay. So I haven't pressed play yet. So one, he's wearing a Different color sweatsuit. Yeah. So instead of gray, this is more of like a gray poupon mustard color. Um, he is wearing the same side slung fanny pack, or as you would call it, a bum bag. He's wearing a cabbie hat and he is eating. So it, this is also around seven in the morning. This was posted and he's eating from what I can tell an entire Christmas dinner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> eating a full <laughs> with a cup of coffee he's eating an entire christmas dinner yes with a cup of coffee at six at seven in the morning wow this this man eats every morning at around 7 a.m usually sometimes it's a little bit earlier sometimes a, little bit a full meal <laughs> he has eaten various. He has eaten a steak pie. Uh, he's eaten a chicken korma. <laughs> what? <laughs> he's eaten a chicken casserole. <laughs> it's just a British man who basically he says he gets up like really early. Like he works in <sighs> a market stall. He has a market stall, like a market business based business. So he obviously gets up like at three a.m. So this is his like main meal of the day. But it just means that every day at like. Half six, he's posting the fact that he's eating like a chicken casserole or a curry. Or for most of the month of December, he has been eating a Christmas dinner. That is 
So amazing. Oh my, hold on. So now I'm like, I'm beginning to process everything here. He has 170,000 followers on Twitter. He's a mattress dealer and he describes himself as a West Ham fan and a beer drinker, which proper, proper lad. Yeah. He he also had, there was an incident the other day where he failed to post his breakfast at the appropriate time in the morning. Uh, which was because the England game was the previous night, and he, in his words, sunk well over 20 pints of lager and untold amounts of shots, and therefore had to simply have some toast instead. He also seems to have many sweatsuits, because I'm looking at one posted on December 6th, and he's got a red sweatsuit on, and he is still eating a Christmas dinner, and it is around 7, 17 in the morning. Yeah, wow. First of all, I feel like, the fact that he's found a place that will serve him an entire Christmas dinner at seven in the morning is really impressive. And it's the same place. He's he's going to the same place over and over again. It's true, yeah, he's found a local cafe that serves his Christmas dinner for breakfast. He, uh, I'm looking at a one he posted of a Thai red curry that he's eating at six in the morning. This is awesome. Yeah. Also, when he makes his own food, it's horrific. He made a baked potato stuffed with tuna. Yeah. Ryan, that's that's a spud and tuna. I, I do you, are you not familiar with the spud and tuna? Because he's cream crackered. I mean, clearly, <laughs> that's what the tweet says. The tweet says, "18 hours in the van today, Champion Day. Got a nice spud and tuna before bed. See you all bright and breezy. I'm cream crackered. Night night, Bosch. Luke, I think you got to start saying Bosch at the end of all of our episodes. This is too good. It's also worth pointing out that often he has a pudding with his with his breakfast. <sighs> this is so good. I also love that every time we end up talking about like a weird British thing, like 90% of the time it involves some weird food thing that's also happening. Yeah. I mean, it, but you know, I like the guy. This seems good. This seems like a good vibe. I, this is a very positive vibe going on here. Oh, wait, hold on. I got to the lager tweet. Statement. (laughs) Last night, I sunk well over 20 pints of lager and untold amounts of shots. I woke up with an extremely sore head. I'm sorry to the thousands of people who was waiting to see what I was going to have for breakfast. Usual service coming tomorrow. And then he replied to that tweet with a video of him shirtless in bed eating a plate of toast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This guy rules. I want to hang out with this guy. Yeah. It seems like he'd be up for it. He's just a very cheerful man. This is great. This is delightful. I love this. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's perfect content. This is really good. We should probably talk about the exact opposite of of this, which is the Twitter files, right? We should probably do it. In many ways, Matt Taibbi is the opposite to Tom Skinner. Ugh, I don't even want to say his name because I don't want to like end up in some rumble segment. But yeah, let's go talk about the Twitter files. So, Luke, what's like your biggest takeaway from the story of the century, the hashtag Twitter files? I mean, my biggest takeaway is that everyone needs an editor. Yeah, I think that's one part. I always try to do this the same way, right? I always try to approach everything that's happening in the clown car that is Musk Twitter with the same attitude, which is, okay, what did they think they were doing versus what actually happened, right? I genuinely think Musk believed that he had something. I mean, we've said before that the problem is that Musk is not a deep thinker, but he's also not a deep reader. Like, he probably entirely missed when Jack Dorsey came out like a year ago and said, yeah, we already knew all this stuff. I think I also think like at a certain level of mania, of institutional mania that like a uh, an important rich guy can get to, 
you just can't read anything because you're too busy either posting or telling people to do stuff based on your various whims. And so I think he thought like, oh, I'm so confident that there's something here that we can do and we can release this and it'll be perfect. And they really thought it would happen. And now it's not happening and they're, they're trying to pivot, but they can't because there's nothing to pivot to. I don't think there's a smoking gun in there. I really don't. I both think there's not a smoking gun in there. And I also would have published. <laughs> like, I think that's the tricky thing about it is it's not that it's like a nothing burger. It's a lot less than they sold it as or thought they had. But it's also interesting. There's good stuff in it. And I absolutely would have published that stuff. Well, I mean, we can actually compare this to a much better way of how this would work, which is the Wall Street Journal's Facebook papers. Right. Okay. There's some real damning stuff in the Facebook papers, but there's also a lot of stuff that's like kind of mundane. And I also think, look, if the content mines got the Twitter files, like, would we publish them? Absolutely. Yeah. Would we talk about them on the show for episodes? Absolutely. But I don't think I would go in guns blazing being like, this is a global conspiracy. I think it's very interesting how a social network like Twitter responds to revenge pornography or, you know, the non-consensual sharing of like intimate photographs. Yeah. Which is kind of what this boils down to. I think Twitter did screw up by censoring coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop story. I think every social network did. And Jack Dorsey said that before now that they screwed up. Yeah, I think. And I, I, I broke on as the only person who came out well from this. Can I ask you guys, I missed this story because I was doing a bunch of other shit. So I have no idea what you're talking about. So pretend that I'm a listener who doesn't know what happened. So Hunter Biden is related to Joe Biden. He's the president. <laughs> I know that part. <laughs> I know about the New York Post story, but like what's in the Twitter files that, that got released or that someone got hold of? And how does Matt Taibbi relate to it? So when the New York Post published the story, Twitter blocked the URL from being shared on the site or, or, or they put a warning over it saying it, it can't be shared and basically did it for like, it was like two and a half, three days. It was like a little while. The Twitter files were a release or a cache of documents released by <laughs> Twitter about Twitter's internal... Mo Not released. Sorry. So I mean, yeah, okay. Hold on. So let me take it from here. So Musk, all during the lead up to him buying the company or being forced to buy the company, however you want to interpret what happened, he said that he would release all of the files that would prove exactly how corrupt Twitter has been over the years, particularly pertaining to the throttling of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Turns out he did not release the files. He gave some of the files to Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi, who then published findings via a Twitter thread. They then claimed there'd be more, but then nothing came out for days. Then they tweeted that they had discovered that Jim Baker, who is a former FBI top person, was currently working at Twitter as the general counsel and was in charge of giving them access to the files. Yeah, they discovered they discover that Twitter's deputy general counsel worked for Twitter, which was a shock to them. Right. And, you know, Musk has owned the company for six weeks, I believe, almost two months now. And he was kind of acting like this was a scandal, which I thought was funny because it's like, it's your company, dude. Like, I don't know. You fired everything, everyone else. How have you not fired this guy? So then he fired, he fired Baker or at least forced him out. And now we're sort of waiting to see if there will be another another round of this stuff. But Jack Dorsey's already come out on Twitter and just been like, release, you should release all of them. I think there's a way to do that. I think you probably need to react, redact some stuff because like a lot of crazy people are going to basically threaten anyone listed in those with like extreme violence. And they already are doing that. Yeah. And Matt Tavey had to delete some of the tweets because he accidentally doxed people. Yes. He doxed people. And worst of all, Jack Dorsey's uh, personal email has pizza in the name, uh, which uh, was not lost on the 60,000 QAnon followers that were just brought back onto the site. So it's just become a complete free-for-all. 
and I think ultimately will probably be a bit of a nothing burger. That said, there is some interesting, uh, not quite collusion, but there is some interesting sort of background stuff about how the FBI has interacted with Twitter that I think some right-wing media outlets have been smart to look at. I, I haven't looked directly at it enough to translate the crazy from the not crazy myself, but I do think it's worth, you know, whenever that happens, saying like, okay, how and why is an agency like the FBI getting involved with a social network? I just think that's always newsworthy. Yeah, I think the main the main talk here, if, if you really want to have one, is that the, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's like, well, obviously they should, but also maybe they shouldn't. Presidential campaigns and the White House and the FBI and other things have like, you know, shortcuts into Twitter where they can say, hey, we need this stuff taken down, which in itself sounds like, okay, that's quite bad. But the reality is, is when you look at who, what they used it for, they essentially seem to have used it to try and remove photos of image-based sexual abuse of Hunter Biden from Twitter, which is an understandable use case for it and something that Twitter was trying to do anyway. So it then is a quite hard thing to be like, well, this isn't quite right. The main problem that really comes across in it, I think, is that Twitter really, they did not have a playbook for dealing with it. And they attempted to use kind of a kind of a half playbook they had that they would have used had the Hillary Clinton email stuff happened again, which is this is hacked material and therefore should not be on the site or, or should not be broadcast. But there was no evidence it had been hacked. And as time went on, it became clear it wasn't hacked. And that was very much the conversation people have, were having internally was, can we stand by this? We've said this. We've done this does this add up is this the thing that we can say okay with and eventually twitter decided not really it's not but the, by then the story was that twitter was censoring it and by the time they released it and said yeah we shouldn't have done that which was some months later i think jack dorsey did it some months later it had kind of been accepted everywhere that they had got it wrong and they had screwed up on it which yeah means that then releasing documents where they have a long conversation about i think we've screwed up on this is not as damning as you you'd think it would be but, and yeah, and as I was saying uh, earlier, I think the person who comes across best in it is Ro Khanna, who is a Democrat who is in the tank for Biden, a full Biden partisan, as he says, and says, like, you guys should not be censoring this. This is this is a problem. Yeah. And I think all of it would have been received better if it had been, I don't know, there's like a million ways to have gone about making that stuff more accessible, more interesting, more responsibly reported. I don't know. It doesn't, I mean, anytime I see Hunter Biden laptop stuff, my eyes just glaze over at this point because I'm not one of the people who are obsessed with it. I, I, I think that at this level of scrutiny for this long of a sustained period of time, if there was something interesting in that laptop, we'd already know. I, I, I really do. That's because that's you're an MSM shill. I am. You know me, darling of the mainstream media <laughs> and publisher of a very uh, center of the road uh, publication. Yeah, I love that stuff. No, I think I, I do think that at a certain level, it is easier to understand the world, even though it's more, I think, for a lot of people scarier. But it, I think it, it's more accurate to understand the world as just like a series of misfortunate events than some sort of grand conspiracy. And I, I think like Musk, I don't know, I've seen a lot of people say Musk is red pilled. And I don't really think that's true, because I think saying that Elon Musk is red pilled implies that he previously wasn't. Yeah, and the problem with red pilling is that it implies that you have turned a corner and that you are constantly going further and further down that road. And that doesn't really seem to match with what he's doing. Also, like, sorry, bad news, but like rich guys all think that way. Like, it's not like a new it's not like the Internet has radicalized Elon Musk. It's like he's a rich dude from South Africa. The, mon the money radicalized him into yeah. thinking that he should not pay taxes. When he was a child, like, I, I don't know how to tell, I don't know how to talk to you about institutional wealth, but this idea that like 
rich guys are like being turned evil by the internet. It's just not fucking happening. I'm sorry. Like I went to an all boys prep school in Massachusetts. I can tell you how rich guys think they're all fucking maniacs. Like they all think crazy bullshit because it's fun for them because life doesn't have any consequences. And so this idea that like Elon Musk has looked at some dangerous 4chan threads and now he's tearing Twitter apart because of it. He was always going to act this way. He he latched onto the I fucking love science crowd when he was being asked in various fawning interviews about whether or not the world is a simulation because it was fun for him and an easy way to market himself. But he's never been a guy who like was ever going to be like rational at this level of public scrutiny. But I think the one asterisk with him is that he handily because it really fit his brand said that you know tesla was the only way we were going to stop climate change and save the world and i think that is a a key thing about him that he kind of i mean i mean you can you can find about it a bunch of different ways but in actuality he probably is still a net good for the world depends a little bit how the, the twitter thing pans out but in terms of what he has done to mainstream electric vehicles yeah he's probably still a net positive for the world it just so happens that him being a net positive of the world also made him a shit ton of money. Yeah, I mean, it's like Thomas Edison, right? Like, I enjoy having light bulbs in my house, and I think the power grid is pretty cool, but I also think he's like a total piece of shit and like an asshole, right? Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy the, you know, I, there was a period where the cars were, were good, but Henry Ford was not, so. Turns out Henry, wait, can you spill the tea on Henry Ford? Is he problematic? Should I be worried? <laughs> do you not, do you really not know? No, I, I'm very familiar. Okay, Henry Ford is a is a was an absolute monster, and yeah, I, those two things can be true at the same time. And I think you don't have to bend over backwards to explain some kind of elaborate. Like once again, you, there's no need for a far right conspiracy to be like the man who invents a lot of stuff is also bad, because it turns out that has been a theme throughout human history. <laughs> yeah. That's actually the last thing I wanted to hit before the end of this week's episode. So Molly White, who has the fantastic Web3 is going great website, updated what she's calling the FTX contagion. And it's really elaborate. I'll I'll link to it in our show notes, but it's slowly getting a better picture of who invested in FTX, what FTX was co-investing in with Almeida Research, and where that money went and what the status of that money is. So in terms of investors into FDX, we have Sequoia, we have SoftBank, we have the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, which, oh, fuck me. Yeah, they, that, they, they have gotten to a lot of trouble for that. Yeah, that's not, that doesn't seem, look, I just don't think that Canadian teachers' pensions need to be invested into cryptocurrency. That's me. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. I don't know. No, that's, genuinely, there's a lot more to that story. And like, there was basically a lot of pressure on them to do it, like you know, make more money out of it. And they were short. It was, it was a whole thing. But it's, it's one of those things where you know, if you have something that is suddenly skyrocketing and making a, a shit ton of money, even sensible people eventually go like, well, maybe we should put our money in it. And yeah. Uh, in terms of where the money went, once it went into the sort of vortex of FTX and Almeida Research, it went into Ledger X, Liquid. It went into Celsius, BlockFi, which is now bankrupt or going bankrupt. Hoddle not. It went into Gemini, which is the Winklevoss's crypto exchange. It went into the Solana Foundation. Uh, it went into Coinbase, Crypto.com. Oh my, it just keeps going. I mean, basically every crypto thing you can imagine had a little bit of FTX money. This doesn't seem to include 
the media brands. So, because I know that a lot of other people took all kinds of different investment. I mean, have you seen the thing that the FT had with the the arrangements of FTX? No. Talk us through it. Oh, okay. Basically, this is. I'm trying to think of like a good meme to describe it. It's you know, it's the Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with a red string, except it's just a real company and someone just did this. But it's you know, everything he's done is just it's a different company, it's a different shell company, it's a different agreement, it's a different thing where a bit of money stored and a different person owns and there's a different engagement with it. And it's yeah, it, the the whole thing is just an astonishing mess. I do not understand how someone who now does not seem to have known what happened had as complicated a corporate structure as he did, and then also as complicated both investments in and investments out as he did. Yeah, yeah, wait. So I'm looking at this. So, so I have to like zoom this in on my computer because it's so crazy. I don't know what half these things are. I don't know who, like most of these people are. The corporate structure made no sense. I mean, to put it in context, it's like, and FDFC say this, this is about three times as complicated as the Lehman Brothers when they went down. Well, what's even like crazier is that a lot of it is based on swapping tokens, which if you're not super familiar with the concept, a lot of what FTX was doing was taking money from crypto holdings, converting that money into their own crypto, then using that to store value, and then spitting that money out into other forms of crypto. And by the end of it, nothing's worth anything. Yeah, they essentially said, we are going to issue some Disney dollars that you can spend in our environment and those disney dollars we've decided are worth six billion dollars and that is the actual value of them if you try to exchange them until eventually someone got to the point where they were like is it actually and then everything went to hell i mean i've used this analogy before in the show but it, it would be as if a casino was storing all of their money in their own chips yeah it's yes yeah, though they thought their chips were actually money they right. didn't represent money they were actually money right exactly and when they were like when someone came to the casino and was like, hey, I'd, I'd like to cash my chips out, they're like, why? You have the chips. They're worth whatever we say they are. Yeah. And then it turns out they're not. And, and that's essentially what CZ from uh, Binance did. He basically said, like, I'd like to cash my chips out now. And they're like, oh, shit, <laughs> we can't because we don't have any money anymore. I mean, he did. A, he, I think he did. I think he did a little bit more than that. But yeah. What is super crazy to me and makes me feel both sad and relieved is that several of the services included in Molly White's map of the FTX contagion, including BlockFi, Gemini, Coinbase, and Blockfolio, and a few other of these services, were services that I looked into for my dad when he was at the height of his crypto trading. And these were all well-regarded services. They were all considered like, not safe, but the top tier it was the well, well so was ftx ftx was considered top oh i know and so I, this is what's so wild about it i i feel really glad that i was able to tell my dad on at the right time to sort of give up and say you know like pack it in you're gonna lose a lot of money if you don't and he took my advice he's since put money back into ethereum because he wanted to see if he could make some off the ethereum merge and spoiler alert he did not but a lot of these services were like at the height of the crypto craze. If you were Googling around just as an, as a, an average layperson saying like, okay, I want to do a crypto credit card. That sounds fun. All of the top credit card websites were saying BlockFi is great. Like give it a shot. Gemini is great. Gemini had a credit card. You could try it. But a bunch of, a bunch of these people are still advertising on Premier League football shirts. It's just like really sad to me. 
And the more I think about it, the anger I get, to be honest, because I don't know, I see a lot of people blame like low level investors, like consumer investors for this stuff. But I mean, you try to be a smart investor and this is what you end up with. And half the things that you would have picked a year ago are all on this map. And so it just, you know, it's like, what's the point at a certain level? There, there was probably a moment somewhere around the height of crypto a year ago where if it had continued going, if it had held firm for just long enough, there could have been a large enough institution to adopt it and it, we would be having a very different conversation right now. The rot would have still happened. All the crazy grift would have still happened. But I think we would be having a very different conversation if some country adopted it or something, you know, like other than El Salvador or something. But it didn't happen. No one was like... Uh, what they say is orange pilled hard enough on Bitcoin at the height of its of its maximalism. And so the whole project kind of is a failure, at least for the next five to 10 years or 20 years or maybe forever. But for right now, it didn't work. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. Like you could be very, very sensible with this stuff. And I, I also think that it's like, I guess it's like real money, isn't it? It's like, it would need to get far enough that it was so invested in it that governments have to start to prop, would have to start to prop it up. And I think that as much as people talked about it being close, I don't think it was like, no, as has been proved with this stuff. So I, I just think, yeah, you'd have to start to do mortgages, you'd have to start building institutions. And I, I don't think they were close to that. No, I don't think so either. Hey, Luke. Have you consumed any content to stay sane this week? Almost exclusively the World Cup, I'm afraid. So you got to talk about football. All right. Well, I would like, I would like to rant about the episodes of the Netflix show Wednesday that I got through before I gave up. And so if anyone would like to hear a 30-something-year-old man's opinion on that Netflix show for teenagers, uh, you can head over to thecontentminds.com where you can get bonus episodes. I want to thank our producer, Alan, for producing the lovely soundscapes that are currently hitting your ear holes and for sharing a photo of himself as a raver in our Discord right before we started recording today, which was extremely good. Is a really good new Allen update. If I agree, will you put that photo into the email that goes out for the bonus content episode? If you're comfortable, I will do that. Yes. I'm, you know what? I own my past. The 90s was a hell of a drug and uh, it was quite delightful to enjoy. Perfect. We will, we will see you next week. Luke, can you say Bosch? Bosch. Nice. <laughs>